0: Circumcision represented God's putting them in. He hasn't anywhere indicated that he's put them out. If God is addressing a promise and by means of a sacrament signifying sealing that promise to the children of believing parents, then it's ultimately the ground for the baptism of anyone is to whom does God make promises.
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. You're listening to episode 122, and I'm Jared Buchabor. Thank you for tuning in. Continuing in our series on the sacraments, one of the most debated questions in all of theology, should children be baptized, is about to be addressed by President of Mid-America and Professor of Doctrinal Studies, Dr. Cornelis Venema, and professor of church history, Dr. Alan Strange. If the baptism of children of believing parents is permissible, what's the biblical case for such? Let's hear what they have to say about it.
0: I'm Cornel Veneman. I'm here with my colleague, Alan Strange, and we're doing a second podcast on the topic of Christian baptism, and whereas in the first podcast we focused on the sacrament in terms of its general meaning and significance, we'd like in this second podcast to address a much-discussed and often-disputed question, and that is, who should be baptized? Should believers, as well as the children of believing parents, godly parents, receive the sacrament of baptism is a sign and seal of their incorporation into Christ and the fellowship of his church, distinguishing them from the uh, world and the children of those who are unbelieving. And the debate sometimes is posed in terms of credo-baptism, that is, faith must precede, and baptism is, in that sense, really in some ways a profession of faith, a badge of profession, on the part of the person who presents himself in the way of faith or baptism, or Pato baptism should the children of believing parents also receive the sign and seal of the gospel promises in Christ. It's a a big topic, it's an important topic. Historically, the um, church in general, and certainly in the Reformed tradition, has been of the conviction that just as it was true under the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament economy, which included the rite of circumcision as a sign and seal of the children, uh, the male children, representatively speaking, of the people of Israel would receive at eight days of age the rite of circumcision, which in Genesis 17 is represented as, in a manner of speaking, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace itself that was made with uh, Abraham and his seed seed. Uh, And the question comes, do we in the New Testament find that the same incorporation of the children of believing parents, as was the case under the Old Covenant, is included by virtue of the baptism of the children of believing parents um, receiving the sign and seal of their belonging Um, to—now, there's a fairly broad and comprehensive argument that— has to be made in this connection. It, it could be put in terms generally of what measure of continuity, may we argue, obtains between the Old Testament economy. Is it one covenant of grace, to use the language of the confessions, in the period of Abraham, Moses, David, Old Testament economy, the various administrations of the covenant of grace, and in its consummatory administration in and through the person and work of Christ as mediator, fulfilling the promises uh, for which the people of God were being prepared under the Old Testament economy. Now, the way I put that already implies that I affirm uh, the New Testament, all the promises that God made to his people under the Old Covenant administration find their yes, to which the people of God say their amen, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians And so on the basis of that broad conviction that the new covenant is a fulfillment of that for which God's people were prepared under the administration of the old covenant, the the principle, the premise, you might say the big argument for the baptism of children of believers is to say that just as they were included in the old, so they're included in the new. And let me add to that fairly quickly, this uh, observation that in a general way, the new covenant in Christ, as it's given to us in the New Testament scriptures, is richer in its depth and in its breadth in terms of who is embraced and reached by God's grace than the old. And it would be not to play on my colleague's name, passing strange if uh, the Lord of the Covenant would have included within the identity of those with whom he covenants and to whom he makes gracious promises children under the Old Covenant, but excludes them in the New. Warfield has this great essay in his collected writings where he's reviewing a, a Baptist author's book. I forget the book just now. I think my colleague probably remembers but he starts the, the essay rather uh, abruptly for uh, Warfield, if you know his writing style. He says In the Old Covenant, God put them in, that is, the children. Nowhere are we told in the New Covenant that He's put them out. Uh, we may confidently uh, be convinced that He has therefore included them. Now, the argument is not just this broad argument as I've represented it, it includes such considerations as what our Lord says regarding children. To such belongs the kingdom of God, for example, in the Gospels, um, his references frequently, his receiving of and making that kind of statement about them. I find it very striking. I said to a class I taught recently that Peter, the apostle's words uh, on the day of Pentecost, for the promises to in Acts 2, the promises to you and to your children, and to as many as our God will call unto him— is very significant in context. No one hearing that, and don't forget that many of those there present were Jews of the dispersion, would fail to notice the reiterating of what had been true under the Old Covenant. To use a Bavink expression, God gathers his people in the line of the generations. He enlists his own ordinances, marriage and family, in terms of the identity of those with whom he covenants. And therefore, it would be diminishment of the reach of God's grace and mercy and his initiative were they to be excluded. But we're told very explicitly they were not excluded. The promise was inclusive to you. And it's an interesting passage because in the preceding context before Peter says this, he's provoked through his sermon by God's grace, many of those present who hear him They repent, and what must we do? And he says, you must be baptized, repent and be baptized. That's often cited by uh, anti-baptizing children of believing parents, uh, proponents, as a clear illustration that uh, faith is prerequisite to faith and repentance. One must be converted, one must show signs or evidences of regeneration uh, before uh, being baptized and baptism is really a as i put it earlier a badge that attests the fact that you have indeed experienced that work of god's grace and come to faith but it's in that context that in the instance of those who are children uh, peter clearly makes this declaration now there are some other considerations baptists will often argue those who reject the idea of the baptism of children of believing parents that we have no command in the new covenant scripture new testament that they should be baptized uh, that that's an argument that's sort of a double edged sword there's no command or prohibition more precisely that says they ought not to be baptized and uh, it's it's not a strong argument it could be called an argument from silence but it is worth observing that where there were differences in the administration of the Old Testament economy of the Covenant of Grace and the New, you find on the pages of the New Testament that there was controversy as it relates to relations obtaining between Jew and Gentile in the New Covenant community. You find no instance of any question raised or issues, controversies regarding now the new practice of no longer receiving or regarding such children as members of the covenant community, um, one one other thing I'd like to say at this point, which is kind of a summarizing observation, I've used the language that, uh, from a more Baptistic anti paedobaptist position, paedobaptism or the baptism of children is oftentimes regarded as neglecting what is most significant in the sacrament. Namely, our profession and identification as truly converted, regenerated persons. The, the most important thing to consider at this point is who speaks in baptism? Who is appointing the sacrament to declare something in the way of a sign and sealing of what he, what he is declaring? Uh, from a biblical and Reformed point of view, that's the crux of the issue. It's even reflected in the language Warfield uses— Circumcision represented God's putting them in. He hasn't anywhere indicated that he's put them out. If God is addressing a promise and by means of a sacrament signifying and sealing that promise to the children of believing parents, then it's ultimately the ground for the baptism of anyone is to whom does God make promises. Um, and maybe I should make this observation in that connection. We sometimes use the language of infant baptism and adult believer's baptism, which can suggest that it's a different sacrament. It means something different in the two cases in terms of who's being baptized. I think it's very important to always remember the only ground, the one and only ground for baptizing anyone is to whom does God wish to speak by means of this sacrament accompanying the word. So our question is ultimately the question of, are the promises of the gospel uh, addressed to the children? Now, note, these are the children of believing parents uh, who are themselves baptized on the ground of the promises made to them. And the the key question is, and the Reformed churches have always affirmed, uh, God wishes to speak that word of promise also to the children. And they're summoned through baptism, even as adult believers are, to uh, respond in the way of faith. In the same way they're called to do so uh, as the Spirit works through the Word, calling people to faith in Christ.
2: And when we think about um, the question of what's the New Testament evidence for such, certainly it is the case that there is, as Dr. Venema mentioned, that silence. Uh, We don't have a warrant to put them out. But I think it's also uh, worth remembering that in the book of Acts, where Dr. Venom was quoting uh, the great Pentecost sermon of Peter, I'm going to return to that in a second. But um, in the book of Acts, there are eight instances of what are called household baptisms. And in the Greek, it's pretty clear that the believing party, for example, the Philippian jailer, take that instance, he's the one believing and his household is baptized. It's really unthinkable and makes some sort of nonsense of the text, I think, to think that there are no children within that. But going back to Peter's actual sermon uh, at Pentecost, if I may speak a little autobiographically, that was for me, together with some other things, particularly formative. I was a Baptist all the way into and at seminary. I was at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, and I was a Reformed Baptist uh, when I came there. I had the privilege uh, not only of studying with men like Richard Gaffin, who was very formative in helping me to come to understand the covenant correctly, but um, I also had the privilege of living with Sinclair Ferguson. Um, He would have students live with him, And I did that for a couple of years. And so there was this ongoing dialogue we were having. And I had been reading all of the standard sorts of things that you read uh, about the subject. Uh, But I remember vividly being in his kitchen uh, once, and we had been discussing this. And he was discussing Peter's uh, great statement there that the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I'll spare our listeners my impersonation of Dr. Ferguson, but he said, um, he said, Alan, uh, is it conceivable that God gave this promise of old, uh, to him and to his people? And we sort of then talked about, isn't it the case that wherever God gave promise and promise was always something that accompanied covenant? Uh, you think of the covenant of grace first initiated in Genesis 3, right? The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and that's played out throughout Scripture. And he says in every development of covenant, you can think of it with Noah and with Moses and with David. I won't labor the point, but it's always to you and your seed, So he was saying, imagine here this Pentecost sermon is being given to the Jews of the diaspora, right? These are Jews. They're all Jews there. And so when Peter says the promise is to you and to your children, you could almost imagine one wife turning to her husband and saying, so what's new about this? I mean, this is, it's always been this way. The promise has always been to us and our children. Oh, wait, here's something additional. Gentile inclusion, what has been for us now with, to put it this way, as the gospel goes global, it's going to not only be for ethnic Jews, but for Gentiles throughout the whole world. And so Ferguson, really, he was on a roll here. It was like a personal sermon. It was wonderful. And he was emphasizing, can you imagine then, though somehow... In a, from a Baptistic frame, that this gospel is going to go to the world. But now promise is very different. It's radically individuated and is just to every man for himself. It had been for the Jews to you and your children. It will not continue to be that. Now in the new covenant, we have lost something very significant that we had in the old, the whole way that God would deal typically in families and not just with individuals. Certainly, he deals with individuals. And certainly, salvation is is a head-for-head thing. We understand that. And yet, there's this graciousness that comes because our family is distinguished from the world, and baptism distinguishes us from the world. We're not merely a part of the world. And so, we had that, and he really talks about it at his best. And he says, think of this. You had covenant in the, in the older testament going along at 30 or 40 miles per hour and now Peter is announcing it's going to take off to 100 miles per hour. You know what what Israel has had is now going to be had by the church not by if I may say this to any concerned friends by way of replacement but by way of fulfillment. We have a fulfillment here of all that was ever promised. Uh all God ever promised the the the, the blessings of Abraham flowing to all the nations. And so I found that very convincing. I was at that point converted to a paedo-baptistic position, and the next day was with my other Reformed Baptist friends on the campus at Westminster, urging them to uh, embrace this, and I couldn't even see the point uh, anymore. And I was saying, "How can you believe this?" To which, of course, they responded, well, you, "You believed it a day or two ago, didn't you?" But it, it, it's—I was so it was so thorough. But an, another uh, argument from silence as, as Dr. Venema mentioned, if I could just link into this argument from silence, I also at the time uh, found very, very persuasive in Colossians two. It seemed. And came to, I came to understand Colossians 2 is rather decisive that the Gentiles, now Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, there's a Gentile church, and they they have been visited by Judaizers, Ebionites, uh, they've been viewed, they've been visited by people who are Jews who have been converted uh, in a measure to Christ, but they still think that the judicial or the the uh, ceremonial laws must be kept, certainly by the Gentiles, the food laws, all the laws, including circumcision. And Paul makes it clear that circumcision with hands, Jewish circumcision, has been rendered passé. Because you have the circumcision of Christ. You have something superior. And he makes clear that the circumcision of Christ is being buried with him in baptism. So if you have been baptized, which is of course why Peter was calling on them at Pentecost to be baptized, because circumcision is no longer the sign and seal. It's now baptism. That's really what's being signaled there. But he calls upon, um, he he tells the folk at Colossae, they need not worry. They need not follow the prescription of the Judaizers. uh, They don't have to seek to be circumcised because they have the circumcision of Christ made without hands, being buried with him in baptism. And it really occurred to me as I studied this and thought about it, this is in a passage where Paul is Ringing all the changes. He is speaking about everything that is a matter of discontinuity from old to new. He's telling them, no, you don't have to keep the food laws. In fact, all of this was nailed to the cross, he says. He talks about Christ bringing in this new economy and this being nailed to the cross, and he makes it very clear that they're not under this obligation that the Judaizers would put them under. So in a context, where Paul is telling them every sort of change, we'll put it, from the old to the new. He says to people there in Colossae, you don't need to be circumcised because you've been baptized. They all, all of his listeners, would understand perfectly well what Jewish circumcision was. It was for eight-day-old males. It was for babies, and they would understand that. And if Paul does not say, and he doesn't say, well, there is this replacement, as it were, there is this fulfillment, better as it were, in the circumcision of Christ. But let me caution you, the subjects are different. The subjects are no longer infants. He doesn't say that. And he would have to say that, particularly in a context where he's talking about every sort of change from the old to the new, where he's saying you're not under the Jewish economy. So if he's saying you're not Required to be circumcised, but he doesn't say a thing about the subjects are different. He would say it. He would want to say it because he's telling them everything that is new in terms of the new, and he does not say that. And you might say, okay, strange, you've still got a problem here. Um, how, how do women figure into this? Because it was male. So, okay, maybe just men should be baptized. Paul baptized Lydia. End of the subject. I mean, you have the clear apostolic example. Paul would, we, Paul baptized a woman. So that, that just sort of is the end of that. And we understand why the difference is there. This is part of what is meant when it says there's neither male nor female. It's not, you know, our listeners needn't get worried that this is something that is talking about church office. It isn't talking about church office, but it is talking about a new identity of what our union in and with Christ means. And so women are to be baptized just as men are to be baptized. One thing we
0: haven't touched upon much, and it isn't directly related to this question of the subject, who should be baptized, our children are children of believing parents to be baptized? It, it has to do with a, a longstanding conviction in the church that the one who baptizes, the administrant, needs properly to be officially recognized in their office as an officer of the church, a minister, teacher, preacher, who together with the word he's entrusted to proclaim, administers the sacrament that accompanies that word. Now, it's an interesting issue. The argument is basically that it's consistent with the nature of sacraments as by the Lord's appointment instruments, sacraments that accompany the Word and that incorporate into, initiate one into the fellowship of Christ and His body, the Church. It's a kind of inferential argument that it's therefore proper and not appropriate, on the on the other hand, that anyone would be able to baptize someone into the name of the triune God. A related question that has arisen in the course of the history of the Church has to do with the The person himself who is that officer Uh, in the early church, the Donatus controversy, in short, had to do with if there were a minister officer of the church who had, under circumstances of persecution, abandoned the faith, or been faithless, were those who were baptized or the baptisms that they had administered valid baptisms. And it's always been, and it's explicitly stated in the Westminster Confession, for example, chapter 28, that it's not the piety or the faith or the moral excellence or lack thereof of the one who as an officer of the church administers the sacrament that renders the sacrament uh, efficacious as a means of grace. Uh, I actually had an interesting case in the church I served in California many years ago. A couple came to me early in my ministry there and asked the question, would I baptize their youngest child? And I said, well, hasn't the child been baptized? And they said, yes, but the occasion of the child's baptism had been a really horrific event in the middle of the public worship service between the minister and one of the elders of the church, uh, cursing and all sorts of unimaginable things. So the whole service was sort of colored by this very unacceptable exchange between minister and elder, and so on in the service. So they said, well, we don't think the sacrament took or was valid in view of some problems they had with respect to this uh, minister. And I was very happy that I'd gone to seminary and heard about the Donatist controversy, and I said, well, the baptism doesn't depend upon the one who baptized. He was a minister and officer of the church. He used the words of institution. He used, and uh, you had the sign, element, water, and in the name of the triune God, uh, he was not under discipline, hadn't been removed from his office. It was very unfortunate to be sure, but no, we don't rebaptize The child's been baptized, and that but once.
2: When, the, when you present in the Roman Catholic, they, they have the system of godparents, and you do have to make certain promises. But I believe if it was done by a minister with water using the Trinitarian formula— It's valid, and you should rejoice uh, in the efficacy of such when those come to faith in later years, perhaps, and not think that you need, in some way, to be rebaptized. That another, just another little point we could make here that we haven't made. You have the whole Donatist understanding. You also can have, for example, an administration of of, of either dominical sacrament, the sacraments that our Lord established, baptism and the supper, you can have an administration of those that is irregular in some way. There's something that's not quite maybe following the church order or the directory for worship, but it can also be still valid. And we, we make a distinction between something that can be irregular, but not invalid. And something that can be, you can think, for example, just to take an interesting one, Zipporah circumcising her son. That was, that's not according to the rule. So it's irregular, but we don't regard it in a sense as invalid, partly because there's an, he, he's, circumcised. He's circumcised. So that's just an interesting little kind of example of something that can be, uh, irregular, but not invalid.
0: That's uh, an important distinction. Just one additional comment. We haven't talked about this, but it relates to this whole topic. Historically, at the time of the Reformation, just as an observation, the Reformers didn't get re-baptized, though they came to some rather serious conclusions regarding whether the Roman Catholic communion was the true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they also, if, at least in the French Confession, Gallican Confession of 1559, very explicitly, but it was a general opinion of the Reformers, that if someone has been baptized in the name of the Triune God with the element that is consecrated to that purpose, the baptism is recognized. And I think they were interested in two things by recognizing even those baptisms performed by those who were formerly in the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to um, acknowledge that there remained traces, as the language had it, vestigii, ecclesia, traces of the church. They were not sectarian. They had a very broad view of the church. they You can read things in Calvin about the Roman Catholic Church that might make some modern Protestants, quite uh, enthusiastically so, cringe a little, doesn't deny the presence of believers, even officers within the Roman Catholic Church, who could be regarded as members ultimately of the true church. And they wanted to also respect the once and only once nature of the sacrament. So in the event when you have a pastoral question regarding whether someone should be baptized, they don't know for sure whether they were baptized, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, you may may at times come to a decision that under the circumstance might warrant administering the sacrament. Whatever you do— it has to be an administration that is on the basis of the conviction the person hasn't been baptized, period. Is it not a rebaptism? This is their first baptism. They weren't baptized. But historically, as I said, the Reformed churches, generally speaking, were, and certainly Charles Hodge defended that position in the context of debates in the 19th century, that um, we should recognize as valid, even if in some circumstances irregular and not uh, optimum, and and not rebaptize anyone.
2: And just to maybe round it out and make the point clear that we're not, or what we're not saying, we're not saying then that what we might refer to commonly and agree upon to designate as cults that their baptisms. For example, if you were baptized in, as a Mormon in the Church of Latter Day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses, to take two examples, and I've had involvement with those then you believe that those persons, when they come to a true saving faith in Christ, they were never truly baptized, and they need to be baptized into the Christian church.
1: We continue our series on the sacraments next week by giving our attention to the Lord's Supper, led by Dr. Venema, who will give us a general introduction of communion, giving a brief survey of varying views of the sacrament while highlighting the Reformed view. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.